Our scripture reading this morning is 1 John chapter 5, final chapter in John's letter. Let us hear God's word. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God, when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome, for everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that he is born concerning his Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God is born concerning his Son. And this is the testimony, that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of Son of, God, Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is a sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. But he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and given us understanding, so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Chapter 5 is a concluding ending to our reflections on John's first letter because John is summarizing and reviewing much of the ground he has already covered as he closes his letter. Now, I will be frank that the last chapter of John is a little bit tricky because at parts it feels like John is, is saying as he concludes, oh, I've got to get this in, and oh, I've got to get this in, and let me mention this. 
But despite that, I think that we can see a certain train of thought, a certain summary throughout chapter 5 that, again, brings uh, the major themes of the letter to their proper conclusion. What we've seen all along is that John's got a problem, or more particularly, his church has a problem. In some capacity, John the Apostle was involved in planting or establishing churches. We don't know exactly where, but clearly he's writing to a body of believers. And he's acknowledged that some of those believers have left the church that he was involved with and started a new church, so to speak. But that church is characterized by a different kind of spirituality. A spirituality that has less in common with the spirituality that's articulated, the Christianity that's articulated in the Gospels themselves. And in that sense, I think there's a lot to connect what John is doing and what's going on in his church to us today. Do we not have people leaving really by droves the church for a spirituality that's more agreeable to them? Really, historically, at least in America, in shocking ways. Gallup reported just last year that for the first time in American history, less than 50%, actually 47% of people, claim to identify with or belong to any house of worship. Now that includes synagogues, mosques, and churches. And that's down 20% just from 1999. Now that's driven mostly by what are now called the nuns, which are typically 20-somethings who may have even grown up in the church, but leave home and go out into the world and don't identify by any religious affiliation. They don't necessarily say they're atheists. They just say, I don't know, and I don't really care. And so they make their way in their world. But in this sense, we're seeing something very similar to what was happening in John's day. Because you may know, and I certainly have met many people over the last two decades, that may not go the full direction of the nuns, but they at least say, you know, I like Jesus, but I like my Jesus. I don't like all the Jesuses he presented in the Gospels, and I certainly don't like the church. So Jesus and I are going on our own trip, and we're going to be just fine together, but I don't need to be part of your church or this tradition that's been handed down. And that, friends, sounds a lot like what's happening in John's day. Now, in John's day, as we've discussed, the particular concern is that those who have left feel like they don't need a uh, a physical Messiah. In fact, they don't want the Messiah to be physical because they think the physical is bad and it compromises the integrity of who the Messiah should be and the Spirit of God. If they don't need a physical Messiah, then they don't need any kind of physical atonement. Now, this notion has been particularly popular in recent days. Um, If you followed any of the new atheists, which are a group of thinkers that have kind of been lumped together who are arguing against Christianity, but not only Christianity. Generally, they claim that all religion is bad. And in fact, the most harmful sociological element in the history of the world has been religion. And if we got rid of religion, then we'd be doing much better as a people, moving on without this kind of crutch or entrapment or false belief. There are a number of them. One of the more popular ones, at least in the early aughts, was Christopher Hitchens, who died sometime in the last decade um, from cancer, but was fairly prominent and wrote a very popular book uh, in the, um, sometime in the aughts, which is, was entitled God is Not Great. And Hitchens argued that a physical atonement is an offensive idea. So the idea 
that justice would be served by vicarious atonement, and when he uses that phrase, he means that the sins of someone would be placed on another, and that person, that other, would pay the price for those sins. He would argue at length that that's not justice at all. Who would ever conceive of that as a just act? Now, what's interesting and what I feel is, is lacking very much in what a nuance that would be appropriate in really considering the claims of Christianity is that indeed the Bible claims that the atonement is important to satisfy justice or to appease God's wrath. But it, it doesn't really talk of the act itself as a just act. In fact, when the Bible wants to talk about the atonement, right, vicarious atonement, it speaks in terms of love. It speaks in terms of sacrifice. It speaks in terms of mercy triumphing over judgment. Right? Not that this act in and of itself can necessarily be understood in a human sense of justice any more than the Paschal Lamb could be. Right? That Israel would be forgiven on a yearly basis simply because its sins were placed upon a lamb. Uh, one lamb put to death and one lamb sent out into the wilderness or goat. Right? Is that justice? Not necessarily, but it's a means by which God eventually drives to the cross of Christ and exercises his love, which is what John stresses to us almost more, perhaps more than any other gospel writer, right? For the love of God has driven the atonement that's been executed. And that's really, right, a notion that makes people very uncomfortable, which is interesting. I don't know if you've thought about this, but frankly, I think it's hard to be loved. When we're loved very deeply, intensely, in a way that makes us feel uncomfortable, sometimes we feel naked. Sometimes we say, oh, I can't, I can't possibly deserve that kind of love. Or I'm not worthy of that kind of love. Or if you love me to that degree, what expectations does it place upon me? I'm not sure I'm ready to reciprocate that level of love. And we become unnerved. And I think this is part of what goes on for you know, someone who's arguing against the atonement, a physical atonement, just on the basis that a vicarious you know, exchange of sins is unjust. Because it becomes a different conversation to talk about the love that's involved in that picture. Part of the atonement is more like a father who has a desperately addicted child. And that father goes to the drug dealers and says, let me take and consume all the drugs that you have so that my child will be free. And I do this out of love and out of mercy, out of a desire to see my child restored. This is what John is talking about when he talks about the love of God that's put on display in Christ. And this is what he values in a physical atonement, which is just what these separatists, those who have broken away, say, we don't actually need that. And is it any surprise that John has said throughout, well, you're failing to love one another? Well, if you haven't been loved by a God who lays down his life, right? greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. If you have not known that love, how would you be expected to put on display a love that reflects that love? But for John, John's saying this is the whole problem. If you give up a physical Messiah and a physical atonement, you compromise and degrade the love of God. And if you do that, what love do you really need to show one another? Right? Which is one of the charges he continually brings in his letter. 
to those in the church. And so, as we consider John's engagement with the separatists and encouraging the church that remains, I think really what he would say to us today is, you know, if I'm John, I'd say, I want you to be encouraged. I want you to understand that you, just like the church that I'm writing to, the remnant that's left and I'm encouraging, I want you to be encouraged. Yes, I know people are leaving. I know people are leaving for a more agreeable spirituality. I know that when they leave, they usually have an easier time with the world. Don't forget what's involved here. And don't, don't ref, uh, forget what's it cost for you. Right? We're talking about notions of eternal life. We're talking about notions of experiencing abundant life in this world. And this is what John holds out for the church. So again, as I said, it's a little bit, you've got to kind of take a crowbar in some ways to, to organize this. But this is, uh, this is how I'd like to proceed this morning. Number one, obedience matters. Number two, testimony and testifier. And number three, the threat of idolatry. So obedience matters, testimony and testifier, and the threat of idolatry. What do I mean when I say obedience matters? Well, it matters a whole lot to John. He stressed it throughout his letter. If you have noticed, we've tried to put a certain uh, accent light on that as we've gone through. But even as he starts this closing in chapter 5, skim with me the first four verses. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. Everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. Okay, if you love God, you're going to love those, your brothers and sisters in the church. By this we know that we love the children of God, that we love God and obey his commandments. How do we know that we're actually loving God and loving others? Well, it's all bound up in loving God and obeying his, his commandments. And if John's language is confusing here, uh, he basically moves back and forth freely between these components to say that they're all necessary of Christian discipleship. Like, you can't say, I love God and love Jesus and not love your brother. And you can't say, I love my brother, but I'm not obeying the commandments. All of the components, loving God, obeying the commands, and loving your brother and sister, are absolutely necessary to Christian discipleship. And if you say, I'm doing pretty good, I have two out of three, you're in big trouble. Because John says they go intricately together, and one cannot be detached from the other. He goes on in three, for this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments again. And his commandments are not burdensome, for everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, right? Those also who have been born of God are actually overcoming the world. And we see this notion of obedience and overcoming of the world and obedience to the commandments, a love for our brothers and sisters that characterizes those who love God and are loved by God. And so John is stressing that there's going to be a righteousness that goes along with right belief. Now, theologically, I've told you during this series, what, the way we refer to that is that orthodoxy and orthopraxy go together. Orthodoxy is right thinking. Orthopraxy is right doing. And what, you, can't, you can't say, I have really good orthodoxy. Right? My knowledge is great. I know the scriptures like nobody's business. I know the confession. I'm in a good place. And then have no orthopraxy. Right? Who are you? You're a Pharisee. And you can't say, I have great orthopraxy. Right? I love everybody, I serve, but I don't really believe the right things because then your works really are just about whatever you're getting out of them and not about your vertical relationship to God as revealed in Christ. And so John is saying these things, two things must go 
intimately together. And it reminds us to take stock, to ask ourselves, what, what do, do my actions reveal about my belief? Do my actions actually reveal that I believe what I claim to believe? Uh, Jennifer has a great story, my wife, and she gave me permission to talk a little bit about it. But Jennifer grew up in the church in East Texas, and she decided to go to uh, a Christian school, Baylor. And she was at Baylor, and she was studying hard and moving through her classes, and she was also having a lot of fun. Uh, And she eventually kind of thought to herself, goodness, I don't know that I'm on a road to be a mom. I don't think I'd be a good mom on the road that I'm on. And so I wonder what it would look like to kind of change course. And so through a really funny and providential set of circumstances, uh, Jennifer decides as she's in the middle of school and trying to, to figure out life, well, I'll go on a mission project and that will straighten me out. And so she ends up in New York City for an entire summer with crew uh, doing a project among all kinds of different Christian ministries in New York City. Most importantly, she met me that summer, but that's not part of this story. We'll tell that story at a different time. And so Jennifer arrives, and she's like, what have I gotten myself into, and how do I get home? Is her initial reaction in the first couple of weeks. But as the summer proceeds, she's confronted with all kinds of realities that she's never been confronted with before. You know, people living out their faith in a sacrificial way and uh, having an expectation to talk intelligently and deeply about her faith in the context of the community that was gathered and going out and talking to people about Jesus who didn't know Jesus necessarily or believe in Jesus. And so she started to go through these motions and what started as um, really a a self-help summer right? Like, I want to get my life straightened out. I'm going to go on a mission project. Turned out because she was, she was challenged to, to go through these actions of obedience. Now, she could have gone home or she could have said, I'm not going to participate, but she participated. And the obedience that she engaged in began to flesh out her faith in a dramatic way, right? God mes- met her in the midst of that obedience, and she ended up going on staff with crew and moving to New York City, for a number of years to participate in that that ministry. Her life took a turn that she, I don't think, ever anticipated at the beginning of the project. And that turn happened because she engaged in obedience, even though she didn't necessarily find her heart in that place. In terms of thinking about obedience, I think it's um, important, as we recognize that it's an indicator, not to dismiss it. Now, obedience is a little bit tricky. Because some of you may say, I really do like the idea of Jesus. I'm trying, but I know that I lack obedience dramatically in this particular area, and I'm not being successful in being faithful. And you might be tempted to despair. Remember that John has told us, right? If we're faithful to confess our sins, God is faithful to forgive us our sins. And so you should not be defeated at trying to move in the same direction. But some of us avoid obedience because we know that our heart isn't necessarily in the right place. We, we have so worked in, it, in us, 500 years of Reformation theology, like we have to be super careful about works of righteousness or taking pride in our works. And so we may say to ourselves, well, my heart isn't in the right place, so I don't know that I'm going to go and sacrifice in this way. And that's where I would challenge you that sometimes uh, there's this notion in, in God's world and in God's revelation that form precedes filling. 
And this is what I mean. When God creates the world, it's not filled. right? He creates a form, and then he has to fill it. When he creates Adam and Eve, he creates them. He creates the form before he fills them with his spirit. And when you raise your children, if you are raising children, and if you're not, you can certainly learn this by observing parents. Right? You raise your child, and you don't... <laughs> What parent here has ever said to their child, you know, let me know when your heart's in the right place, and then I expect you to obey. But until your heart's in the right place, we're not going to worry about it. No parent says that. What we say is, uh, I don't really care where your heart is today. I expect you to obey. And I'm going to trust that over time, being molded by the obedience that's expected of you, that your heart is going to grow and mature and ultimately find the right place. And that's a, that's a deep truth of the gospel. And sometimes our heart is not in the right place. Sometimes our faith is struggling. And that's the most important time for us to keep being obedient, to keep going through those motions, those liturgies of a life of discipleship, so that our heart begins to grow and we begin to understand more deeply what God wants us to believe. Now that takes us directly, John takes us directly to that notion that obedience is always going to be a sign of where we're struggling in faith or where maybe where we recognize that we're not believing. But as we work through that, John reminds us that we need to return to the testimony of the one great testifier. This is our second point. That faith is oriented around the one who testifies to himself in his own work. Right? What John is raising is the question, what do you believe and why do you believe it? What underlies this obedience that I've been talking about in the beginning? Look with me at verses 6 through 8. This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies, because the Spirit is truth. For these are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood. And these three agree. Now, what in the world is John talking about? Spirit and water and blood. Frankly, there's a little bit of debate and discussion in the history of the church about what John means precisely here. But importantly, everyone virtually agrees that what John is doing is emphasizing the humanity, the physical humanity of Christ, right? The very thing that the separatists are trying to leave out. And so what I think is happening here is that when, when John refers to the water, he's referring to Christ's physical birth. And when he refers to the blood, he's referring to Christ's physical death, right? The very two things, components that the secessionists, those who have left, have compromised. No, God really was born as a man, and no, God really did die on the cross. It wasn't a spirit that came down and occupied Jesus and then left and skipped those two parts. It was all part of the plan of God. And John says the spirit agrees with these and testifies to us that indeed Jesus is God in the flesh. Man, we, uh, there's so much to be said here. And, you know, for the sake of simplicity and time, one thing that I haven't brought out is that almost, almost all theologians agree that this break in the church has occurred 
over a debate about John's gospel. Right? In other words, John's written his gospel, and let's remember that in John's, John spends more time and energy uh, teaching us that Jesus is divine than any other gospel writer. Right? Think of his prologue in which he talks about the Word made flesh and that the Word has existed eternally. And then think about John is the only gospel writer to give us the I am statements. Right? What would we do without those? When Jesus says, I am, and I am the bread of life, and I am uh, the water, right? uh, eternal water, and I am uh, the gate to the sheepfold, right? and I am the good shepherd. The seven I am statements of John also testify, right, claiming divinity on the part of Christ. And so the church presumably has been debating this new gospel that started to circulate, and their interpretations have differed, right? and causing some to leave and deny the physicality of Christ. And here John is stressing, no, no. The Spirit has testified to us that we have known God in the flesh. And we have known this because God was born a human being and he died a physical death in which his blood was shed. And John goes on to say, you know, it's not, if you deny this testimony, you're not just denying knowledge. You're denying the one who has put this knowledge forward. If you look at verse 10, uh, John writes, Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his Son. What is John saying? God's testified in the person of Jesus Christ. Right? God has become man. He has become the God-man. In his physical birth and in his physical death, and the Spirit has testified to it. And if you deny this, you're not just denying the testimony, the claim. You're denying the one who's made the claim, and you're making God a liar. And this is almost certainly the sin that John references in verse 17, when he says, yeah, there's, some sin, there's a sin that can't be forgiven. Right? This notion that you deny that God has come in the flesh uh, in Christ. But it's a reminder to us that as John has moved from obedience to this notion of accepting the testimony of God, that all obedience is rooted in belief. And when we find ourselves lacking obedience, is that not ultimately a lack of belief? Is it not ultimately a lack of faith? Didn't this whole thing start right when the serpent in the garden questioned the testimony of the testifier? Well, that's not what God meant. No, actually, you're going to become just like him. And we're thrown into a world of chaos right? and sin and rebellion and death as a result of not accepting the testimony of the testifier, accepting God's testimony on his own behalf and trusting in that. So again, it makes me wonder, what do I really believe? How do I know what I believe? And when it's really put to the test, you know, does it shine forth in, in a real way? How much does my life look like the life of Jesus, which over and over in the New Testament, Jesus is held not just out as atonement, but as paradigm as one we're supposed to mimic in our life of love and sacrifice. Whenever I think about this, I'm always reminded of a very well-known story, which you have probably uh, perhaps heard before. But it was a story of a man named Charles Blondin. And Blondin was an acrobat and tightrope walker uh, in the 1800s. And uh, he did work all over the world, but he's most famous in America 
for deciding to span 1,100 feet across the Niagara River just before the Niagara Falls with a rope that was about three inches in diameter. And he crossed the Niagara Gorge on the rope. I don't have any idea what possesses somebody to do that. I, I really don't get it. It's like watching Free Solo. It's like, what's wrong with you? Right? The guy who climbs El Capitan without any ropes. Right? And they even do brain scans. And they're like, yeah, something's wrong with his brain. He, and I think something was wrong with Blondin's brain, probably. Um, so Blondin goes back and forth. Right? He does all kinds of tricks. He, um, he gets down in the middle and, and kneels. Uh, he takes a stove out and cooks an omelet while he's out there. He takes a wheelbarrow across, and he gets back with the wheelbarrow. And the crowd, you can imagine, is going nuts, right? No TV, no movies. Like, this is pretty good. And so Blondin goes, uh, who thinks, you know, actually, before he goes with the wheelbarrow, he goes, who thinks I can cross with the wheelbarrow? He crosses with the wheelbarrow. And he gets back. Who thinks I can cross with somebody in the wheelbarrow? And the crowd goes nuts. Of course you can. You can do anything. And Blondin says, okay, who will volunteer to go across with me? And I imagine you could hear a needle drop, right? Who's going to volunteer to jump in that wheelbarrow? Right? It's a great illustration of, ah, oh, we can say we believe things all day long. But when the rubber meets the road, do our actions and our obedience really testify that that obedience is real? You know, interestingly, there was one guy who went across with Blondin that day. Uh, his name was Harry uh, Colcord, and he was his manager. And he went piggyback with him all the way across the gorge. One person that day believed that Blondin could actually carry a person across that gorge. And he went across with him because his actions gave evidence uh, to his belief. And so the question for us, right, that John is raising and is encouraging the church by or challenging the church by us, who do you believe? Do you believe the testimony of the, the people who have left or do you believe the testimony of God? Right? And if you believe the testimony of God, are you sure? Because it will look a certain way in your life if you actually believe that testimony. Now, if you do believe that testimony and obedience takes root, then that changes everything. Right? And we see this played out as uh, John goes into this very final section in which he gives one uh, final purpose statement and one final exhortation. And this will be uh, to avoid idolatry, which is our third point. So in verse 13, interestingly, uh, John, you know, John gives a purpose statement to the writing of his gospel, uh, which occurs at the end of his gospel, and he gives a purpose statement here to writing his letter, and they're almost the same. Uh, this is what is very much on the heart of the Apostle John. In verse 13, he writes, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. And so we realize that all along, John's not been trying to win back those who have left. At least that's not his primary aim. His primary aim has been to encourage and to build up those who have stayed in the church, those who have remained true to the testimony of God, and to remind them that the end of the story is that you have eternal life. It's your possession in Christ because you are in him and he is in you. And if that's the end of the story, then even though your faithfulness may seem hard, it is the best way forward. In fact, it, no other way forward compares because only one is bound up in the eternal life that God offers. And so he's encouraging the church in this way. And fascinatingly, as he, as he goes through his final comments, he gets to the last line. And if you think, you know, um, 
writing is incredibly rare. Few people can read, right? The instruments and elements of writing are extremely expensive uh, at the time that John is living. And he's, he's weighed what he wants to write, and he's put it down, and he's got his last line. And what does he say? In verse 21, little children, which is his term of affection that he's used throughout the letter, right? Those who I love in the church, keep yourselves from idols. There's almost a, wait, what? We haven't talked about idols at all, unless we've been talking about idols the whole time. Right? What John is saying at the end of his letter is, listen, if you go and you take bits and pieces of the Jesus story that you like, and you leave other pl- bits and pieces that you don't like out, you're no different than a guy who's walked into the woods and grabbed a piece of wood and carved it up the way he wants it, and kneels down and prays to it and expects blessing and fertility to come to his life as a result of worshiping that idol. Because you've made Jesus into an idol that's agreeable to you and of your own liking. And what John is saying, avoid moving in this direction. Which means that you consistently take the testimony of God seriously as he has revealed him in Christ, himself in Christ Jesus. Even as we are a church that lives in an age in which we're seeing all kinds of people move in a direction of a spirituality that is more agreeable to them, an age in which all kinds of people even in the church would say, yeah, the testimony is not that reliable. We're just going to go with what we think is right. And they either start new churches or move away from what we consider the Orthodox Church. How fitting and timely are John's words to you and to me today? That we would be encouraged What would he say to us today? He would say, little children, those of whom I have great affection for, well done. But remember, to believe the testimony. Remember to obey the commandments and to take your obedience seriously. And remember that you have overcome the world and that you are guaranteed eternal life. And if if you move from this direction... And if you move in a different direction, remember that it is nothing other than idolatry. Let's pray. Father, thank you for, uh, for John. Thank you for the gift that is his, his gospel and his letters. Thank you for uh, giving us a word that is just as applicable uh, 2,000 years later as it was in its day. And so in this day and age, would you help us to take stock And to be encouraged, as John seeks to encourage his own church, he encourages us. Help us to be mindful about your testimony to yourself in the person and work of Christ. Let us not make a Jesus of our own choosing, but instead help us to have a bold faith and a reckless obedience. We pray that your spirit would continue to press home to us, that it is the water and the blood that testify to the person of Christ. And out of that, may we walk faithfully, knowing that in you, we have overcome the world. And so we ask that you would guide our steps and walk with us, and indeed would, uh, would ensure that we not only remain steadfast, but are very careful to avoid idols. We ask it all in Christ's name. Amen.